I believe it's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Um, and the NSB reads, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who has pre- who prepared us for this very thing, for this very purpose, is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. I think you guys are starting to catch on now. Announcement gives me enough time to transition away from the guitar, get something to drink, get this thing on, come right back up here. You guys are getting used to that. <laughs> uh, it is a joy, so long as my vocal cords will will uh, keep up. Um, it is a joy to do so, and I'm glad to do it for the glory of God. And uh, I'm excited about this text in front of us, so let's pray, and we'll jump right in today, okay, to our scripture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. God, where would we be without your word? Lord, we would be lost. We would be confused. We would be in darkness. And God, we're so grateful for a light in the midst of darkness. These are dark times. These are evil times to say the least. And we're grateful that you have given us a sure guide, a sure word of prophecy in your word. And so, God, I pray that as we look at this text today, that you would simply work in our hearts, awaken us to see great and marvelous things in your law. We thank you for your word. We pray for your favor. I pray that you protect me. Guard my mouth, God from speaking error, and guard the hearers, Lord, and give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, um, the subject and the title of this message is called Confidence Beyond the Grave. Confidence beyond the grave, because that's really what the Apostle Paul is looking at. There's a controlling text that handles this whole context that really goes all the way back to chapter 4, verse 7, and it is here in chapter 5, verse 6. It's all connected. It's all linked together. Paul says, therefore, being always of good courage, of good courage, and then he goes on to talk about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the whole purpose of this context, brothers and sisters, is to be uh, encouraged, to have a certain confidence, a certain boldness. And now we saw how that worked in the midst of our trials, our trials being that which God has ordained for us to sanctify us, to shape us, to mold us, to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And in light of our heavenly hope, in light of our eschatological hope that we have, our trials have been reduced so that now they are nothing but momentary and light afflictions in light of the great and glorious eternity that we have. 
And this whole passage is really marvelous for several reasons. But one of the reasons why is because the Apostle Paul can have confidence beyond the grave, in the face of death itself. And uh, he gives us several reasons why we can be encouraged in this way. Number one, let me give you the first reason that I've jotted down, and that's this. That, that, that he lived in expectation of his heavenly home. Look at verse 1 again. He says, For we know that if the earthly, if, that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so certain reasons in this verse really support this this expectation that the Apostle Paul, he had an anticipation, an eschatological anticipation. His hope was not in this world. His hope was not in this life. He had a hope. He had a confidence that transcended this life and gave him hope and gave him confidence in the face of death. And there are several reasons why he's encouraged in this way. The first one is simply this, because this earthly tent is temporary. Notice that. That this earthly tent is transient, it is fragile, it is weak, it is susceptible to the afflictions of life, it, it, it succumbs to the weakness of what it means to live in this world. And that, a matter of fact, that's what Paul's talking about when he says that we have an earthly tent, he says, which is our house. And he says, if it is torn down, when he says torn down, he's talking about death. He's talking about the fact that one day your physical body will succumb to the effects of the fall and it will, if the Lord does not return, if the Lord should tarry, it will die. And I always think about that. I think upon my own death all the time. I hope that you do too. Because when you think about your death, you think about your life, right? When you think about the day that you die, you think about how am I living now? Knowing that one day it is true that I will appear before Christ, as Paul's going to go on to say in the next context, that we must all appear before Jesus' great judgment seat. And for the apostle, he did not only have confidence in the parousia or in the second coming of Christ, he certainly did. And he expresses that in all over his letters, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, he had great confidence in the second coming. It was his hope. And a matter of fact, he told the, other, the believers in the church, encourage one another with this hope. Encourage one another with the fact of Christ's return for us, that he's going to come to snatch us away, to, to catch us up and to be with him forever. That is certainly a great and comforting, comforting thought. But there is more comfort yet. There is more encouragement still. And that is this, that even if our bodies, our house, our earthly tent is torn down, we have a building from God. Isn't that amazing? What this means is that for the Apostle Paul, he didn't dread death like everybody else, unbelievers in particular. That's not to mean that for the apostle there wasn't an element of fear. Oh, I'm sure he was afraid to die just like any, any one of us. He wasn't suicidal. He didn't have a death wish. He wasn't trying to look for the day of death. But he knew that it would come nevertheless. And in many, many places, the apostle Paul can be seen even looking forward to that time. It's quite amazing. 
It's, it seems as if he's ready to go. And if God calls him, then he would be ready to go to be with Christ. Let me just give you two texts in particular. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Christ will even now as always be exalted, or the word is magnified, in my body, whether by life or by death. For, and this is the principle that governs that kind of perspective, that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How many of us live like that? Death is gain. Death is gain. You know that for the unbeliever, they cannot look forward to death like this. They have no hope in death. Death for them just sort of represents a multitude of unknowns. It's mysterious. It's dreadful. It's frightening. And as many will tell you, they think that death is just the end of life and nothing more. I'll never forget, uh, many years ago, I would go out to, um, to do evangelism with Ray Comfort in Santa Monica. And one of my favorite things that Ray would do is that he would put up a chart showing the people in the crowd how many weekends they got left to live. It was amazing because all the young people would just scoff. Oh, man, I got hundreds of them. I got, I got about 2,000 according to that graph. But it would always be, it would always be neat to see the, the older people in the crowd. The chart starts going down in age or up in age, and the weekends become fewer and fewer and fewer. And I used to just love the way Ray would just kind of rub it in by telling everybody, and you know how fast weekends go by, because your weekends are going by just like that. And you know what? Those people, a lot of them were just so gripped with fear, fear of the unknown, fear of the uncertainty, but that's all they had, folks. All they had was fear. They had no hope. They had no certainty in death. They didn't know what awaited them beyond the grave. And I thank God for this glorious hope that we have right here. That for the Apostle Paul, death didn't just represent uh, uh, the cessation of life. Death didn't represent some, some, some state of existence that was unknowable. You know, for the Apostle Paul, one of the things he's trying to prove here is that death and the intermediate state before the resurrection is not going to be some ethereal existence. We're not just going to be phantasms or spirits floating around in the universe. But we are going to look forward to being with the Lord. To being with the Lord. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually looked forward to the time when he would be with the Lord. It wasn't that he looked forward to death itself, but what death would bring him. That is, a closer communion with Christ. And as he got older, notice the contrast. That as some old, older people who don't have Christ, for them, death is very scary. Death is very frightening to them. It just sort of filled with all sorts of mystery and unknowns. But for the Apostle Paul, it was a sure heaven with God. It was a sure uh, uh, a reunion with Christ his Lord. As a matter of fact, as the older that Paul got, the more it seems he looks forward to that time. I pray that that would be our perspective in this life, that as the older we get, the more and more we long for and we look to our being with Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. That's talking about his death. He says, the time of my departure has come. He knew he was going to die. 
And then he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And this is beautiful. Not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. You see that? So he extends this to you and I. That the reward is not just for Paul. It's for all of us if we love His appearing. But if you're there, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I would just point out to you the manner of His life. In the spirit of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, where it says to consider the faith of those who taught you the Word of God. In other words, your mentors, your leaders. He says, it says, imitate their conduct. And look at Paul's life. He fought the good fight. He finished his course He saw his life as being on a course. He was on a track towards heaven. He was on a course that God has set in front of him. He had a purpose. He wasn't just being tossed around in this life, aimlessly going about, trying to figure out, what am I doing here? What is life all about? One of the most tragic things and heartbreaking things for me is when people don't have any passion in life. They don't have any direction. They don't have any goal. They don't have any purpose for why they're alive. I don't know how a Christian can be an aimless person in life. We have been given such a great duty to, to, to know God and to make Him known. It's as simple as that. Spurgeon, when he reflected on the sacrifice of ministry, he had basically the same perspective as Paul. Listen to what he says as he's addressing thousands of pastors in a meeting. This is what he tells them. Should they, should they die in the service of the Lord? Listen to what he says. If by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of man, worn out in the master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of this earth and so much more of heaven. I love that. Talk about an eternal perspective. But we can also anticipate what death will mean for us for a second reason. Not just because our tent, this earthly life is temporary and we're going somewhere, we're heading somewhere. But also because our heavenly home is vastly superior to our earthly tent. And by heavenly home, let me be clear that what I mean is our resurrection body. There's a big debate as to whether or not that is what Paul is talking about. But I think as you look at the context of this book and the context of 1 Corinthians, I think that Paul is here just reiterating what he says in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is an, and as, as a matter of fact, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there are several points of agreement. As a matter of fact, there's a whole list of Greek vocabulary words that are identical to this passage here, which makes me just think that Paul is bringing in sort of a synonymous or a parallel teaching on the resurrection. After all, that is what kind of gave birth to this whole discourse we're in now. Look back at chapter 4, verse 14, right here in 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4.14, he says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. And so resurrection is what, what is on his mind. That's what is on his mind. So I think what Paul is referring to when he talks about inasmuch as he did not want to be found naked, inasmuch as he did not want to be unclothed, all that language refers to the fact that the intermediate state is not the end goal for the believer. 
Uh, this would be contrary to the position, therefore, of some commentators like Charles Hodge, who would say that the, the, the body, the, 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 uh, the building from God, the house not made with hands, is referring to heaven itself. But I don't think that's true. One of the reasons why I don't think that's true is because the word that you see there in verse 1, not made with hands, is a very rare Greek word. As a matter of fact, it only appears two times in the New Testament. And the one time it is speaking about a person, it's speaking about Jesus. And Jesus uses it in a very uh, familiar text to us, but maybe we didn't know he used this word. He says in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, he said that he would... That, that, that if you destroyed this temple, remember, made with hands, he goes on to say, in three days I will build another not made with hands. And of course, John chapter 2 tells us precisely what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the temple of his body. That is a way to describe his resurrection body. Therefore, I conclude that when Paul is saying a house not made with hands, he is, like Christ, speaking of a resurrection body. That's what he's talking about. So that the future for us, brothers and sisters, is to be reunited with our body, but it's our resurrection body. Isn't that amazing? You know that we have a resurrection hope. That's our hope, is that one day we will be resurrected and we will have renewed bodies it will be the same body you have now, but it will be better, wildly better. And it's, uh, it's quite perplexing because it is going to be the same body you have, but it won't be the same one you have right now in the sense with all its limitations and being marred and stained by the fall, by sin. No, it will be a renewed body. It will be a perfect body. And you know what? Our hope, I want to just magnify this for you, our hope is so unique in the world, that we have this glorious resurrection to look forward to, and if any worldview outside of the Christian worldview has any sort of similar resurrection hope, it's because they have borrowed from our worldview. Let me just kind of illustrate this by saying this, that right now in our culture, in our time, in our contemporary society, right now there is a, a, a strand of atheism that is on the rise. I've spoken about this before. A militant atheism, what I call pop atheism, because this atheism is being born not in the classroom with the philosopher, nothing like maybe what we saw during the Enlightenment period with David Hume and the secular humanism of that age. No, it's, it's quite a it's quite, a, um, you know, it's quite an inferior, if I can even say that, form of atheism because it's so less informed. It is a pop atheism because it's born in pop culture. And because it's born in pop culture, it is rooted in postmodernism. That's what has given uh, birth to this new atheistic movement. No longer is atheism the philosophy of a professor that resides in a classroom, some university somewhere. Now it's just popular to be an atheist. It's cool. It's hip. And because of postmodernism, the very foundations of knowledge and certainty itself has been obliterated, and we're surrounded by a society that believes they cannot know anything for certain anymore, which means they cannot know if God exists. I have people almost on a weekly basis telling me they don't even know if they exist while they're telling me this. <laughs> It's just amazing, the blindness, the darkness. 
And so that today, really, what's going on because of pop atheism and pop agnosticism is that everything is up for grabs. Nothing is sacred. Everything is to be ridiculed and mocked. What's so sad today is that the young people of our culture are drowning in an ocean of banality. They love to watch shows that all that, all that goes on during the whole show is just ridiculing each other and tearing each other down and just making fun of this subject and that subject, which is sad because that has effects onto how they view life, how they view the world. And so that ultimately nothing is knowable. Ultimately they are hopeless because they can't know anything for certain. They don't know if there is a God. They don't know if there's an afterlife. They don't know if they have a soul. They don't know. They don't believe in heaven or hell or demons or angels. It's a completely anti-supernatural worldview. And as a result, they are completely lost. So many people mock at the idea that the devil exists. I think, wow, what a trick of the devil to get people to believe that he doesn't exist. Perfect. What a perfect strategy, right? But we know, based on Hebrews chapter 2, that the devil actually enslaves people to the fear of death. But that's not what's going on here. Paul is not enslaved to the fear of death. Paul is enslaved, and we could use that word, to his resurrection hope. Paul is enslaved to the fact that he has a future building made by God, not with human hands, and that it is eternal in the heavens. In other words, it is a vastly superior, vastly superior existence in a resurrected body than anything that we have seen or known here. Now, secondly, it's not just because we can anticipate uh, our resurrected bodies, but also because in this life, it transforms, this hope transforms what goes on in this life. So that groaning in this life is longing for the next. That's the second point. Look at verse 2. He says, for indeed in this house, talking about these bodies, we groan. Why, right? That's something we can all identify with, right? We all groan in these bodies. We feel the effects of the fall. We feel the outer man decaying and falling apart and being subject to all sorts of aches and pains and sicknesses and diseases and all of those sorts of things. He says, but longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, that is the ultimate state that we're looking for. Not a disembodied state, but a state where we, were, where we are literally, the word is covered over. We are covered over with something. We are covered over with our resurrected bodies. He says, for indeed, while we are in this tent, our, this body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life, by life. This is the resurrection hope circumventing the fear of death, the fear of being in a disembodied state. And this is what Jesus has done through the gospel. It has everything to do with the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10, listen to what this says. He says, but now... He says, but now this has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Through the gospel. Our immortality is a result of the gospel. 
This immortality will be fully realized, therefore, when we get our resurrected bodies to depart and to be with Christ now in this inner, in an intermediate state is, is a good. He even says it's far better, but it's not the ultimate goal of the believer. Our ultimate goal is to be in our resurrected bodies. Amazing. This is also deeply rooted in Jewish thought. For a Jew, like Paul, to be disembodied was, a, was, was dreadful, was unthinkable. To be without a, to be, to, to be a spirit that has been disillusioned from the body, it, it represented a very mysterious state of existence. But this is nor purgatory, and the intermediate state neither is the permanent status for believers. The intermediate state, when someone dies now and goes to be with the Lord, is only temporary, awaiting the final or the general resurrection of all believers. That is our future in Christ. But now, the apostle would say, now if you are longing, if you're burdened by these trials, if you're feeling the effects of the fall, turn your groaning into longing, right? We should not just stop at groaning because if you groan and you don't long, all you do is groan. But we have been given a hope so that our groaning can be turned into longing for heaven, longing for the hope that has been reserved for us by God, that we have this glorious future to look forward to, that mortality will be swallowed up by life. I love it, never to die again. That's another reason why our resurrected bodies are so vastly superior to these bodies because they will never succumb to death again. And here when he says being swallowed up by life, life represents the end goal of our existence, the telos of our resurrection and our resurrected bodies. It's glorification. It is the final step in God's chain of redemption for us. It's amazing. It is what Hebrews talks about, the, spirit, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous one day will be made perfect through resurrection. So, this is no ethereal or no, to use a Puritan word, our, our, our departure will not be to be in a dreamy condition, as they talk about, a nirvana-like state. It will be concrete, brothers and sisters. Our eternal destiny is concrete because it is corporeal. Because we have a beautiful resurrection to look forward to. Now, let me just end with this, this last point, that we can have this confidence thirdly because, not only because we can anticipate, live in anticipation, and the fact that our, our present condition is only temporary, and also because our groaning can be turned into longing, but also because it is the master architect of our salvation that is at work. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Focusing in on God's work. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So then this is another incentive why the church can take courage because this is all a work of God's divine design. God created the soul, and Paul's point is that God not only created the soul and all other things, but God created the soul for the purpose of dwelling with Him in heaven in a resurrected body. Paul often gives God full credit for the full spectrum of salvation. 
1 Corinthians 1.30. The Corinthians are used to this. They've heard Paul teach on this before. 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says this, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. And two very encouraging points here. His purpose for us. God has prepared us for himself, brothers and sisters. We are being prepared for heaven. We are being fitted for heaven. Listen to what Paul tells the uh, Philippians in Philippians chapter 3. He says our citizenship, in verse 20, he says our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. That's us right now in this room. We have bodies that are of a humble state. They are racked with pain and limitations and sickness and disease. And, he says, it will be in conformity with the body of His glory. In other words, our body will be in conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That is the power at work in us. That is the power that has fashioned us for a resurrection one day. That is the power that is keeping us. That's the power that's sanctifying us. The power that subjects all things to Himself. It's amazing. He sees that God is preparing Him and all believers, therefore, for glorification. And there will be a transformation, whether we are alive to see the second coming of Christ, where we will be changed in, the moment, in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, or our outer man is torn down, our house is torn down by succumbing to the effects of the fall. We still have this glorious resurrection hope. This is why when God is working through our afflictions. He is preparing us, and that's how He's doing it. For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I hope that you think of it. I pray that you dream of it, that you think of your heavenly dwelling, that you think of being with Christ. I don't know how you can be a Christian and not ponder being with Christ. Longing even to be with Him. If you don't, something's wrong. Because that's the whole purpose for which you were made. That's the whole purpose for which you're alive, is to be with Him. To be with Him. You know that heaven will not be an extension of earthly pleasures. We're not going to be playing eternal golf in heaven. Okay, We're not going to be going on extended vacations in heaven. We're not going to be living for leisure in heaven. And we're not going to be floating around on clouds like little Cupid dolls, playing our little harps. We will be ruling and reigning with Him, and ultimately throughout all eternity, in a new heavens and in a new earth, we will behold the beauty and the glory of Christ, and it will be so magnificent that the worst trial you've ever had in this place, you'll look back and say, light and momentary. That's all it was. And the future that we have is guaranteed to us now by the Spirit that we have. Notice what he says. He says, He gave us the Spirit 
as a pledge. This is the second time that he has spoken in this way. You remember earlier in chapter 1, he says, Now he who establishes with you in Christ and anointed us as God, this is verse 21, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The word pledge is the Greek word arabon. It means down payment. It's a, it's a, it's a temporary installment of something future to come. That's what the Spirit is. It is the Spirit of our salvation. It is the Spirit of eternity. It is the Spirit of heaven. And He has come to give us a little foretaste of heaven now, to give us a deposit, to make a guarantee, to put a down payment in our souls that says, you are going to be with Him one day. You will be resurrected, you will be glorified, and you will be in eternal communion with God. That's what the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit is here to do, is to, is to help us as the helper in the midst of our trials, as the parakletos, the comforter. He's here to comfort us. He's here, according to Romans chapter 8, to teach us how to pray, to teach us how to groan when we don't know how to groan anymore, to teach us how to cope. No, it is not God's will to have you doped up on antidepressants. That's why He gave you His Spirit. He doesn't want you sitting on a couch of a psychiatrist. That's why He gave you the Spirit. He doesn't want you to live in despair. That's why He gave you the Spirit. The Spirit is here. Do you know Him? One of the greatest problems, and I, I, I do agree with, with this aspect of, of some of the revivalists like Leonard Ravenhill who would say one of the biggest problems in the church today is that people don't know God. Believers don't know God. They're unacquainted with God. They don't spend time with God. They don't, they don't labor in prayer with God. They don't commune with God in His Word. They don't pray God's Word back to God as the early church did, Acts chapter 4. I asked that um, at our family devotion with my wife and my brother. I said, where does, the, where does a believer pray the Word back to God? Give me a good example of that. Acts chapter 4. Now you know I gave it away. But read it, because it's true. And that's how communion with God is done. And that's why the Spirit has been given to us, so that we can know Him. We can commune with Him. We can have fellowship with Him right now in the midst of our trials. The Spirit is a guarantee, brothers and sisters, that one day we will fully partake of that future when we stand before God in our glorified, sin-free, pain-free, affliction-free, disease-free bodies. Don't you long for that? I do. I do. And I don't really have a lot of problems physically speaking. Yeah, my knees hurt and stuff. Sometimes I'll gripe about that. But some of you face real hard pain all the time. Some of you have physical problems that are real serious. And some people that are not here, that you know have even worse problems. And only heaven is a sufficient hope in the face of so much suffering. But this is what God has done. This is what God has prepared us for. I want to end by looking quickly at the fact that we are in this process. It's part of your salvation. Romans chapter 8, if you'll just turn there quickly, a passage that we all know. But just to ponder quickly what the believer is headed for. Romans 8, beginning of verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, We know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love Him, 
to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed into the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And this is the process. Those that He predestined, He also called. And these that He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He will also glorify. Or literally, He also glorified, past tense verb, meaning, as far as God's concerned, your glorification is done. It is a matter of fact. You will be in heaven. If that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will. That gets me going to know that my that my future is secure, that my perseverance is sure, that God is going to keep me. He's going to preserve me. He's going to keep me for Himself. As certain as God predestined me before all of time, in eternity past, in the infinite counsel of God's wisdom and mind and pleasure and decrees, as certain as that is true, God will take me into His presence when He glorifies me It's going from eternity to eternity, and it's all a work of God in our lives. Take hope and take courage in that, brothers and sisters. As the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, knowing that this is the way that things are going to be, that we have this glorious future, he says, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holiness, godly conduct? Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, you have given us such a glorious hope. Lord, you've given us eternity to look forward to, and by the work of the Spirit, you have stamped eternity on our, on our hearts. And Lord, I know that you desire for us to long for this eternity. You desire for us to long for this future hope that we have And we pray, Lord, forgive us for the times that we cannot get our eyes off our circumstances. Forgive us, Lord, when we cannot take our eyes off ourselves. And when we don't trust your word, we don't believe your word, and your word doesn't move us. Would you make it move us, God? We pray that you would do that in our hearts, do that in our lives Help us, Lord, to have an eternal perspective. Lord, we do want to long for the presence of the Lord. We want to long with Him. We want want to long to be with Him. Lord, where all of our troubles will be gone, all our burdens will be laid down. Oh, Lord, help us, Lord, to see these things and help us to give you all of the glory for every part of it. In Jesus' name, amen.